What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment in 2021, where we Ooh. continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, who are our patrons and academates at the Bestseller Academy. We have some new patrons this week please be upstanding for the wonderful chris stovell and alice c early welcome to you both and we also have a whole raft of new academates in the academy for a new year new academy new ambitions all sorts of stuff going on mr d how are you sir yeah really good thank you mark how was your how was your christmas and new years you had to ask didn't you um (laughs) well i i woke up Christmas morning in the observation ward of the Queen Mary, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Margate with a kidney stone, which was fun. I hadn't intended to start Christmas Day like that. But the uh, the, the 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 doctors and nurses, they were absolutely amazing, gave me all the drugs I needed. And uh, the stone made an appearance just a couple of days later. Um, so, yes, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I, I Do you know what, Mark? I'm so sorry to hear that. And I... I I think you have to have a word with Santa. I don't know what, what he thinks he should be bringing you for Christmas, but that is not on. Yeah, I wanted roller skates. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, it's... What, what, well, exactly, right? Exactly. I mean, what a fitting end to 2020, <laughs> really. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. But- Utterly crazy stuff. But it, was, it was... But it makes you wonder as well when you... I mean, it, it certainly makes you appreciate all those people who are working on Christmas Day in hospitals. And like, I, I remember we actually, one year... We had to turn the oven off because uh, my dad's uncle had a heart attack on Christmas Day and we had to jump in the car and drive up to Norfolk. And we had that kind of day hanging around the hospital and it made me realise, oh my gosh, as a little kid, like I was only, I don't know how old I was, I was probably about eight or nine at the time. And I just assumed everyone stopped for Christmas. <laughs> it's like, they, so, um, the, the NHS staff were amazing. I was helped by a nurse called Holly, which seemed appropriate, but uh, oh, they were just, they were just brilliant. But I tell you what, when I was a bookseller at Waterstones, uh, first week of January, well, the week before Christmas, you ordered big piles of two books okay right and you put them at the front of the store in january never mind the january sale that's one thing but you put these two big books where everyone could find them without asking and they were what to do when someone dies and the witch guide to divorce and they flew out (laughs) they absolutely flew out it's a stressful time it can be a really really stressful time for people so you know uh I've had a pleasant Christmas. Uh, I know other people don't have pleasant Christmases, especially this year with everything that's going on. So if you had a crappy Christmas, happy new year to you. It can only get yeah. better, you know? So if it's... Absolutely. And if you if you had one of those interesting Christmases where you obviously couldn't travel and you didn't have family dramas because you couldn't decide which family you're going to, I think for a lot of people, they experienced um, what I would like to think is an 18th century Christmas where we didn't have to drive up and get stuck <laughs> in the M25 for four hours or have family fallouts because you'd chosen Auntie Mabel over, you know, Uncle Fred. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's, it, that was one of the blessings I think from this year is we actually got to experience that. And it was nice just downing tools and it felt a lot less stressful this year as in a weird way because you think well based on the year that we've had and also over in Canada I don't know about in England but people really went for it I think because there was a bit of joy and light in the world around Christmas it was like you know what we're really going to go for it this year so all these all these people who wouldn't normally make a big deal of Christmas really did have a lot of fun but um do you know it's <laughs> it is quite fascinating though because New Year's New Year's however you know usually no pressure of having to go to the parties, which was a nice thing. But I've got to say, a little bit of a downer at midnight from my end. 
Oh, well, we have... The little ones decided to stay up. <laughs> the little ones decided to stay up, which was fine. They're, they're only 11, so, yeah, you know, but made it through. But what I realized is that we didn't really have anything planned for the countdown. And I was trying to get Google. I was like, hey, Google, uh, play it. And I didn't know what to say. And it kept playing some rubbish song. I was like, no, no. And we had two minutes left, right? Big countdown. And so I went online and I thought, right, new, now in in, England, in Canada and America, there's the New York yeah. ball drop, yeah. which people may or may not know about. And so what happens is that happens at 9 p.m. our time, but 12, 12 p.m. In, or 12 a.m. in New York. So, But then they repeat it every hour for all the people across the time zone. Right. It's kind of funny. <laughs> so we we logged online to watch the ball drop at midnight and Western Canada time. And all I saw, and I don't know if anyone else experienced this, but all I saw were adverts for a car <laughs> on the ball. It, there, was, there was no, it was just like 2021 is sponsored by Hyundai. And like, there was no ball. It was like just big advert. And I was like, so I thought, this is rubbish. I'm not going to sit there and look at this. So we desperately look for something else to do a countdown. And I went onto the internet, I went countdown New Year's. And I got this thing, timeanddate.com or something, which is like one of these time zone websites. And it had a countdown. It was like 59 seconds, 50. I was like, quick, we've got to get the drinks. And we're getting like orange juice for the kids and bucks fizz for us. 10, 9, 8, we got down three, two, one. And we're like, way. And I looked at the screen and it just went one, two, Three and he started counting up. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, the most rubbishest countdown ever. It was like, oh, okay, here we go, twenty twenty one. Brilliant. See, but it was fun. What did you do for New Year's? Did you make it through? Oh no, we 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 we. I mean, we go to bed about nine thirty. You know, we <laughs> we're, we're celebrating really, New Zealand. We're New really years. boring. Yeah, <laughs> no, we we just kip in. My daughter stayed up. I know she stayed up because she's a big fan of Animal Crossing. Uh, the game and apparently if you stayed up Ooh. for Animal Crossing for midnight you got a special display or something so she she's <laughs> normally brilliant. she's the one who's who's tucked up in bed first but no it was um, we we tend to go to sleep quite quite early I'm quite boring like that yeah. I'm an early riser kind nah. of person but you know it's um, I, I don't want to get too excited about 2021 uh, we're seven days in and it's already more bonkers than 2020 so <laughs> Let's, yes. Uh, yeah, let's... I saw I saw a I saw a picture yesterday online, a very funny meme of um, the Joker and Pennywise clown, and it was the Joker. Did you see that? <laughs> the Joker introducing no twenty twenty introducing twenty twenty one to the workplace. Yeah. It was kind of yeah, it's been absolutely bonkers. Um, but we have some kind of sad news to report, don't we? Well, you know. Uh, it's it is sad, but I, I think ultimately it will t- it will come good. But um, I, I noticed just before Christmas, Joanne Harris tweeted that uh, she said today in this writing life, uh, Joanne learned she has breast cancer. Oh, 2020, you are really spoiling us. And she's decided she tweeted. She said um, she's going to she thinks of cancer as an unwanted Christmas guest and she's going to call him Mr. C. And she tweeted. She's, she, I picture him looking a little like one of Brian Frood's goblins, you know, from Labyrinth. Uh, so. So, and and the other thing she said is uh, she's got you know they caught it early she's got surgery booked so uh, it came from a mammogram routine mammogram so get yourselves checked regularly folks it could save your life but it, it said I don't I've met, I've met Joanne Harris a few times through working at Orion and through Gollant she's a wonderful wonderful human being a magnificent writer but in particular for the podcast she was the first author we interviewed for the podcast if she hadn't given us fifteen minutes of her time. Would there even be a podcast? Because once you say, mm. oh, we've interviewed Joanne Harris, people go, okay, that's a credible podcast. I mean, still arguing whether or not we are a credible podcast. Yeah, but sure. without Joanne Harris saying, yeah, I'll talk to you, I doubt we would have, I mean, who knows? Who absolutely knows? So knows? Joanne yeah. Harris, um, we wish you, we send you big love. We wish you all the best. And we hope that, uh, you know, um, you get rid of that little goblin and um, everything gets back on absolutely. track really soon. Yeah, our heart goes out to you, Joanne, and it's um, it's really relevant on, on this day that we talk about this because because uh, this is the the birthday of my wife, um, and if anyone's been following the podcast, um, they'll know that Jenny passed away um in 2018, and this is always a very strange day for us as a family because we don't know, you don't know whether to celebrate it or feel really sad about the fact she's not here. Um, so what I did today is I we would always have a special breakfast, um. 
We would go to Tim Hortons, which is a very Canadian thing to do, even though they're now owned by an American chain. But anyway, we'll forget about that. Um, we'd go to Tim Hortons and we'd all get up a bit earlier and I'd buy muffins for the kids and Jenny and me. And I'd always have to get Jenny her coffee. She loved her cup of Tim Hortons coffee. And so as I was in the drive-thru this morning, I thought, you know what? I'm going to actually buy Jenny a coffee. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought I'm going to buy Jenny a coffee. And... um and then I thought, but no one likes coffee in our house. It's just going to sit there and get cold. So what I did is I thought, well, this is perfect because Jen's coffee was always cold. because She was this amazing <laughs> mum, right? She had three, we've had, we've got three kids. So, so she was always running around doing stuff and she'd always, and it's a classic mum kind of thing that you drink cold coffee. So today what I've done is I've got the, I've got the coffee sitting on our dining room table with a picture of us as a family. And I'm just, as we speak, the coffee is very slowly going cold and i and what's great is that the actual coffee cup says tim's it's the most wonderful tim's of the year <laughs> yeah. um and i've actually doctored it because the t and the i very easily become a j and an e yes. so i've got it's the most wonderful gens of the year so if anyone's on my social media page they'll see my uh my little tribute and i'm going to keep that cup now because so it's um you know, it is a sad day, but you've also got to remember, and this is what I take from this. This is a really important message I want to give everyone today via my missus, who would have loved to have told everyone this. And that is that make the most of this year, folks, because um, Jen didn't know when her time was coming. We didn't know that she was going to pass at 46 at such an early age. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, she wrote this book before she passed away. And I had so much fun hearing about all the stories about what this book was doing for people, the little kids who were getting it this Christmas. People keep buying it every Christmas because that's when we started to push it. So it's become a bit of a Christmas book. So don't put off your dreams until next year. And those busy mums with those cold cups of coffee, you can still write your 200 words a day, which is what we've got so many amazing people doing in the 200 word a day challenge in the academy. It's like there is never going to be a less busy time in our life to live our dreams. And I think that's the message that, Jen would want to say to everyone today and also, you know, in our heart going out to Joanne, the fact that she has created so much incredible um, work in her lifetime already, you know, she's banking all that all the time and, and she's never going to regret any of those words that she she wrote and for many years as well, hopefully. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an important time of year. It's the beginning of the year and it's reflection, but um, just to leave people with that message. Absolutely. And um and yeah, what about 2021? Because we've gone off flying out the door with the 200 word a day challenge as it's now rebranded. Yeah. If people haven't done that, signed up for that yet, it used to be called the BXP 2020 challenge, but it's now 200 word a day challenge. How it's been a bit bonkers, hasn't it? On, on the Twitter sphere with people putting in their word. Count it's marks. been just terrific. Absolutely terrific because it's, it's the time of year when people make those New Year's resolutions that they're going to get, get the hang of this kind of thing. But the, the great thing is this year, we know it works. We've had, you know, so many, or, and we'll, we'll, we've got some social media at the end of the show. So hang around for that. We'll, we, you might get a mention if you've tweeted us or Facebooked us recently or Instagrammed us or emailed us. Uh, you might get a mention at the end of the show. But yeah, we've had so many people saying, this changed the way I write. I've written more this year than, than any other. And, and people are latching on. So we know it works. We know this thing works. And, um, it's been wonderful seeing people jump on board, uh, hearing about us for the first time, hearing about the challenge for the first time. And we're there to cheerlead you all the way. So, um, yeah, just find that small part of the day to write 200 words, create that habit. Yeah. And get writing. Absolutely. I can't wait to hear of all the incredible stories that we get out of 2021 because there were so many amazing ones out of 2020. So if you want to do the 200 word a day challenge, try it for five days. It, we're already in January, but start it now. Don't lose another day. Get over to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the 200 word a day challenge link and you can sign up. It's free. It's fun. It's inspiring. And uh, then tell us how you get on for sure. Absolutely. And Mark, we have um, a wonderful guest today. 
a wonderful guest that you got to speak with, none other than Michelle Campbell. Yes, wonderful. Michelle Campbell, an international best-selling author. Her debut novel, It's Always the Husband. What a great title. Isn't that a great title? Uh, was Very true as well. <laughs> was, was, yeah, exactly, yeah. Was a bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller. She's a graduate of Harvard College, Stanford. Uh, she was a formal federal prosecutor who specialised in international narcotics and gang cases. So that's hardcore stuff. Wow. Uh, but yeah, she's written some amazing books. She's got a brand new book out, uh, which uh, is called The Wife Who Knew Too Much. She has great titles, really, really great titles. And in our conversation, we talk about things like the balance between plot and character, the importance of editors, taking breaks in writing and how that affects how you write, and making writing one of the top priorities in life. Brilliant stuff. Let's dive in and listen to our first interview of 2021 with Mark chatting with none other than Michelle Campbell. Michelle Campbell, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's our absolute pleasure. And I've been, I've been very much enjoying uh, your new book, The Wife Who Knew Too Much, uh, which is a small-time waitress, marries a wealthy man whose first wife died in an apparent suicide. And as I'm going through this, I'm thinking there are real echoes of De Maurier's Rebecca. Was that something intentional? It absolutely was. That is one of my favorite books. And I definitely drew inspiration from it. Um, but I wanted to put it in an American seaside setting. Um, in the US, my books come out in the summertime. And in the UK, they come out in the winter, when I think everybody needs a holiday and wants to be thinking about the beach. Uh, yep. So this book in particular is um, set in the Hamptons, which is the sort of playground of the rich and famous. And it's about a small town girl, uh, a waitress, whose first love comes back into her life. And he has been married to an extremely wealthy woman who dies right at the beginning of the book. And then it's really the story of the young waitress trying to make her way in this world to which she's completely unaccustomed. So yes, you're absolutely right to hear echoes of Mrs. De Winter, the second Mrs. De Winter, the girl with no name. And there was just, of course, recently a new adaptation of Rebecca, which perhaps some of your listeners uh, viewed. And uh, so that book is a classic. Love it. It absolutely is. And uh, I've not read the book, I must I must say. And I was really looking forward to the movie because it's a Ben Wheatley movie. I love Ben Wheatley as a director. And this is something very, very different from him. And then every one of my friends on social media who loves Rebecca hated the movie. <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> It's I a difficult that. book to get right, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, yes. And there was also a classic movie adaptation, you know, in the 1940s yeah. or whenever that was. I think that... If you want my sort of critique of the most recent adaptation, as much as I love Army Hammer, I think he was miscast as Maxim because part of what makes the book work is that there is a tremendous power disparity between Maxim de Winter and his new, you know, naive young wife. And part of that is really based on their age difference. In the book, she's probably 22 and he's probably 45. And I think that probably modern adapters felt that that age difference would be a bit hard for modern viewers to take. So they cast a much younger actor. And it's much more of an equal relationship because of that. And it does take away a bit from the book, I, I think. Uh, the book really, you know, she was so naive and swept up in this life that she could not even fathom of great wealth. And also, of course, the English caste system because she begins as a lady's companion. And so she's married into this uh, wealthy aristocratic family and, you know, really just doesn't know how to put a foot right there. But it's mm. a great book. And yes, The Wife Who Knew Too Much takes a lot from Rebecca. So that's sort of an interesting segue into the concept of inspiration and what inspires people to write. I'm sure that's something that your listeners think about a lot is, you know, where to get their inspiration. And my own experience was coming out of a background in law. I am not somebody who is trained as a, in a creative writing program. So I really did have the experience of kind of searching for my 
writing inspiration in a more practical way, you know, trying to draw it from life or from books that I read or from my experiences with criminal cases that I had worked on. And so that, you know, I think is is very interesting and everyone has to find their own way with that. There's, there is a glamour in this as well, which, uh, you know, we talk about the Hamptons. I mean, when I think of the Hamptons, I'm thinking of Ina Garten going from, you know, door to door in this, <laughs> this wonderful lifestyle. Well, my wife is a devotee, so, you know, it's... Uh, I, oh, I have so many of her cookbooks on my shelf, yeah. Yeah, so do we. <laughs> well, so this sort of goes to the concept of write what you know, and although it's a long time ago now, when I was living in New York City, we did spend several summers renting uh, a place in the Hamptons just for the month of August, um, which is something that, you know, if you're fortunate enough, that's your, like, big holiday if you're if you live in New York. And so I did have some insight into that life, although not nearly, of course, at the level that I'm portraying in The Wife Who Knew Too Much, which is, you know, the fabulous wealth of these seaside mansions and multiple servants and so forth. Um, but the Hamptons is very interesting that way. There are more modest places, although they're all, of course, very pricey. <laughs> but um, then there are truly the rich and famous, you know, the titans of industry, movie stars, and I was trying to give a bit of a sense of that excess because it's so fun, you know, to read about. <laughs> and uh, But using this very, um, you know, every woman type of main character so that you could kind of imagine yourself, you know, what if I were suddenly tossed into this epic luxury? Um, how would I react? And, and, you know, how does she keep her values and her moral compass in this world where all of the knives are out for her, um, everybody she meets has secrets, and, you know, everybody would kill for the money that's involved here. So it's a great topic for a thriller. Well, that was the the, the great thing, because you do have uh, an every woman figure who is our way in uh, to the story. How did she come about? Where did she come from? So... Again, you know, write what you know. And I really, um, I have lived uh, in a lot of places in my life, but I spent a fair amount of time in New Hampshire, which um, for your listeners who are not familiar uh, with the U.S., it's a northern state on the East Coast, um, north of Massachusetts and Boston. Um, it It does have um, some urban centers, but it's largely rural. Um, and uh, while it's a prosperous state, it also has real pockets of sort of tough, gritty working class life um, and farms and so forth. And so I just was familiar with that environment. I've actually, um, the other thing New Hampshire has is a lot of educational institutions. Um, there are universities and um, boarding schools, which I guess um, you call college. Um, you know, and of some prestige there. So I had set books there before because I've written a number of campus novels. Um, but I wanted to write about the kind of more, you know, the kind of local working class small town girl um, that I saw, you know, in this uh, place that I've lived and contrast it with the sort of excess that you see in the Hamptons. So I just, you know, that just seemed like a good way. Uh, having written now a number of novels, I do feel that readers like to have somebody they can relate to, which isn't to say their circumstances are exactly the same, but they want somebody to root for. And yeah. so I, I felt like that would be a good, as you say, way in. Absolutely. And, and the important thing when you have someone to root for they don't have to I, I saw you retweet something the other day where you, someone's you know the, some of the worst advice you can get feedback you can get of your writers oh you need to make your protagonist likable and uh, you retweeted something like well there goes all kind of crime and pulp fiction you know it, they don't have to be likable but they they have to be interesting don't they, they have to be complex yes yeah, so I would say that um, Tabitha, the waitress and the wife who knew too much, is probably one of the most likable characters I've ever written um, <laughs> because I do write thrillers in which you want uh, the reader to have a puzzle to solve. You want there to be a whodunit. Um, and so you need to make all of your characters believable killers. If they're not believable to kill, then how can they be a suspect? Um, so that means writing complex characters who have a dark side, um, 
And the way I think to make them relatable is really to give them a, a human backstory, you know, so that somebody who uh, might seem quite striving, you understand that maybe they came from poverty or somebody who might seem uh, incredibly cold or cruel, you see that, you know, they had a terrible relationship with their mother or something like that, where there's enough backstory to the characters. They're not just flat on the page. And I do think that's something that you don't always get in thrillers. I mean, sometimes thrillers are I, I would say my thrillers are more character driven. There are some that are just totally plot and I love those and no disrespect. I mean, those, I have ultimate respect for somebody who can just like plop you down in a situation and it's, it's like a hundred miles straight ahead, you know, uh, speeding ahead. Um, and I, I do, I do take a little bit more time to set up who are these people and why are they doing what they're doing. So, and I do agree that as long as you do that, you've got your reader hooked because they care whether they like the the character or not, they care what happens to them. Absolutely. There's always a, particularly with thrillers, there's always a very delicate balance between plot and character because you really do need that driving plot, the twists and the turns, the reveals, the reversals, all that kind of thing. Are you much of uh, an outliner when it comes to that, or do you like to just jump right in? So, yes, I always outline, and that's partly a practical consideration, because in order to uh, move forward with the publication process, my editor requires at least a synopsis of a book. So whether the book has been uh, placed under contract in advance or not, like sometimes uh, you might uh, contract two books at once. Uh, even that second book, uh, before I go ahead and write, I need to provide a synopsis to my editor of here's what's going to happen. Um, now I do sort of like, I write that and it will usually be quite detailed, say four or five single page, page uh, pages with, you know, who are the characters and what is the plot. Um, and then I just find that I start writing and I don't always, it's not like I'm going by paint by numbers. I yeah, kind of yeah, cast yeah. it aside. Um, and then at the end of the day, when I go back to it, I always find that I have written the book that I set out to write, but sometimes it can seem to be a very winding journey to get there. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a very familiar tale, I can tell you. Yes, I think most writers experience that. Absolutely. Let's go back to where it all started, because I read somewhere that your passion for story started when your mother got you a library card. Oh, yes. Well, um, yeah, I come from a fairly modest background. Um, and so our purchased books would happen at the school book fair. Um, but I did have a library card. And um, I was also kind of a latchkey kid. I don't know if that's a term you have yeah. over there. But yeah, oh, my, yeah, mom, yeah. my mom and dad both worked. And so uh, it was my job to get my brother home from school. And then we'd be alone until they came home uh, from their jobs. And um, so... I just spent a lot of time reading. Um, in my first book, It's Always the Husband, uh, there's a character who had a similar background to that. And she she quotes, a, there's a quote that I see people repeating regularly. And so I know it resonates. And she's basically reflecting on the fact that books were her friends and they kept her from being lonely um, and, you know, gave her this kind of access into other worlds. And uh, that was definitely how I felt as a child. And, and um, you know, sort of getting back to your topic of um, how, you know, helping people on their writing and publication journeys. I always say that the only true requirement for being a writer is being a reader. And I know I'm not the only person who said that. I'm sure every author gives that piece of advice. But if you don't love books and you don't love to read you just can't write because you just don't have the background that you need. Mm, yeah, totally agree. Now you, uh, you became a, a federal prosecutor in New York city and you obviously that is, uh, an all consuming, uh, you know, a profession. So how did you get into to writing novels? Were, were you working and writing in the evenings or early mornings or, um, so no, essentially, and I found this to be a fairly familiar tale among other female writers that I've, I know, um, it was a work motherhood crisis. I loved what I was doing. I, I was a federal prosecutor for eight years and, um, 
there's just no more exciting job in the world. I mean, I was doing uh, narcotics cartels and gang cases in New York, working with FBI and DEA. Um, and it was a combination of investigations, which meant that, you know, uh, say an FBI agent would come in. Uh, this was um, uh, at a time when the FBI was doing more drug cases than they are now, or a DEA agent or whatever. They would come in and say, we want to investigate this uh, cartel that's moving, you know, thousands of kilos of cocaine uh, into the United States and we need a wiretap or we need a search warrant or we need whatever. And so I would actually work with them at the investigative stage to uncover the evidence by doing the court part of that, like getting the permissions that they needed to, to legally pursue their uh, targets. And then um, once the, the uh, arrests were made, then I would handle the cases in the courtroom. So it was, you know, I did, I did some jury trials, you know, standing up in front of the jury and all of the other types of appearances, whether it's for conferences or sentencing or, um, you know, bail hearings or whatever. And so that was really using every part of yourself. I mean, it was intellectual. It was competitive. Uh, you were trying to win, but you were also trying to do the right thing. Um, this was back in the day when the U.S. Justice Department was really focused on justice. Uh, no, com no, no further comment there. But, you know, we were always told that... Um, <laughs> If you didn't believe in the case, you shouldn't be pursuing it. Um, you needed to have, you know, real evidence before you could even bring charges. You needed to, you needed to feel that um, a jury would think that it, the case was valid. Um, and so I love that job so much. Um, but then I had kids and um, it was, as you say, an all-consuming job. Um, when you're doing trials, you know, you have to work late into the night and be at court first thing the next morning. Um, and it just never stops. And so the time came when I really did need to leave um, because, you know, uh, my husband was also an attorney, and so he was working and at a private firm. His salary was higher than mine, so there was no, and I was the mom, so you know I was the one who was going to be home. Well, it turns out that that's a wonderful time to start writing, and I know a lot of other women who had had high-powered careers, and uh, you know, childcare in the U.S. is not the best. Um, and so when the time came to decide what to do with young children at home. Often, you know, it would be the mom who decided to stay home and but uh, looking for something perhaps beyond just the playground and nap time and so forth, wanting some more fulfillment. I had so much knowledge in my head about crime and law enforcement um, that uh, it was easy to start writing. And I actually did write another um, series under a different name before I started writing these books that was very much based on my time as a prosecutor. It was about a prosecutor in New York and it was a, a procedural series, um, much more, you know, just like a case for each book, you know, the murder victim at the beginning and uh, the arrest at the end and sort of what happened along the way um, with a protagonist who bore more relationship to me, although it wasn't pure autobiography, than anything that I've written in recent times. Um, that, you know, I think those kind of books have fallen out of favor, at least in the U.S. Um, they're not, and the, that series, it did okay, but eventually I ended up, once my kids were a little bit older, I went back to um, law and I, I taught. I was a professor at a law school, and um, I've always found that it's pretty, for me, being a mother and working full time, I could not find time to write. So I did not write for, I'm going to say maybe five years. Um, and that's sort of another topic to cover. By the way, feel free to jump in if I'm just going on and on. No, I'm, I'm loving okay. it. Keep going. Keep okay, going. great. Um, <laughs> So I, I do think that one of the key ingredients for success for a writer is the simple factor of time. Um, if you don't have time to make writing one of, say, your top three priorities in your life, I do think it is, or even top two. I mean, I think it's very, very difficult to produce a book in any 
like period of time in which you could sort of say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go get published. I mean, for me, when I was home with my children, it took me about two and a half years from when I started writing to when I published that first procedural novel. Um, when I was working full time and still also had my kids and my family and, you know, needed to put dinner on the table and all that, I getting home, you know, say at 6 p.m. or something, I could not find the time to write. And my weekends, I just didn't want to give my weekends to working nonstop, which is what you'd have to do. And I did not, I did work on a book during that period of time, but I did not produce a publishable book. Um, And so I think, you know, other people may have more uh, diligence than I did. And I certainly know people who work full-time and raise families and manage to write. But you need to be able to put aside many hours a week if you want to produce a publishable work. We've uh, we've launched a thing called the 200-word-a-day challenge, which uh, which is less about the word count, actually, more about just creating that regular habit of writing. Yes. Because 200 words, in theory, you could do that in 15 20 minutes and we've had we've had authors on uh who have said you know they 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 take that time every day just to write those few hundred words and over the course of a year they have a book you know at, at least at the very least a first draft of a book so that 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 idea of carving of prioritizing that little bit of time to write we found it's incredibly important. Well, so that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I could see what a service you'd be doing to provide that structure for people. Because that, I, as I said, I, I don't have difficulty doing that if it's just, you know, family life and writing. Or if it's just, if I had no, if I hadn't had kids or whatever, if it was full-time job and writing. But for somebody who has a busy life, I think they absolutely need that kind of structure you're talking about because, you know, I think it's just a personal thing. For me, I was not good at taking, whether it's getting up at five o'clock in the morning to carve out that hour each day or staying up an hour later or not doing your exercise or whatever. So for me, I just haven't been successful with that at times when I was working full-time and raising children. Now my kids are older, and so I think I could have a job and um, write, but it also just having the kind of support you're describing, I think, would be invaluable. Mm, absolutely. Now, you're four books into your, your career now. What's, the, what's been the biggest lesson that you've learned in all that time, you know, the biggest surprises along the way? Well, I, I definitely think that um, the the way I've improved my writing the most is by working with an excellent editor um, and really taking to heart all of the comments that she gives on my work. Um, So that's um, one thing. I do think that any way that aspiring authors can find to get feedback on their work um, is just absolutely critical to, to just making yourself a better writer, but also producing something publishable, if that's your goal, you know, because you may really just find yourself going down pathways in your story that um, drag it down or slow down the the flow. Um, You may find a character that you're, you know, very interested in who has, uh, who just doesn't come through to the reader. Um, and needs more, you know, um, there may be things missing from your work that you just don't understand are missing because you're too close to it. So like one comment I got um, on Tabitha in an earlier draft uh, of The Wife Who Knew Too Much was, she seems very alone. Where is her family? Where are her friends? And I hadn't given her that uh, early on. And so I added uh, all of the backstory about her grandparents raising her. Um, I added uh, her friends at the restaurant where she works. And I do think that fleshed her out a great deal and also provided plot elements that had been missing. So, you know, that feedback is really, really important. And um, I have a great relationship um, with my editor, who is one of the most brilliant women in publishing, Jennifer Enderlin from St. Martin's Press. Um, And she really um, gives me a lot of feedback during the writing process. So that's been great. Um, 
I'm trying to think what else. I mean, the tolerance for writing multiple drafts. I do think that um, my earlier series, uh, I just didn't work as hard at it. I sort of expected it to come more easily. Um, and it was a bit more formulaic than what I'm writing now, uh, the procedurals. Um, right. And uh, so I just think that in order to produce a book that's really going to work in today's market and attract attention, you really have to be willing to work the book over quite a bit and you know do what's necessary to bring it to where it needs to be. And that's just sort of a matter of hard work and willingness to be in the chair and willingness to reconsider what where you are and when what might improve uh, the book. So those are some things that I've learned that you know aren't necessarily just the fun part, but the difficult part mm. of writing. Yeah, absolutely. Rings very, very true. What's coming next from you, Michelle? I'm working on a book called The House Sitter, uh, which will be out in actually 2022. Um, so I'm taking a bit longer to let this one breathe. And it's uh, been great, especially uh, it's also fortunate because I think during the pandemic, it's been very difficult to bring books out um, and very difficult to for readers to find the books. So I'm I'm glad that this book is uh, coming out when it is and uh, will hopefully get us past the moment when bookshops are, are closed, when uh, warehouses and uh, supply chains are so uh, pressured that it's difficult to get our books to market. Um, so this book is the story of a young law student at Harvard Law School. Um, and uh, she... Uh, is in a situation where she's house sitting for a very famous judge and uh, there's uh, her roommate is murdered. Uh, and the question is sort of who killed her roommate and uh, what is the judge somehow involved in this? So, um, you know, I'm still sort of in the throes of getting it together, but it's, it's more of a legal thriller, kind of a John Grisham type book um, than what I've written before. Um, and but it does have some of those kind of glamour elements because it's set at Harvard, and uh, this judge is a woman who's uh, very glamorous, and it's sort of about her kind of twisted relationship with her young house sitter law student. So, um, so it's fun. It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to uh, that coming out. That sounds amazing. Absolutely brilliant. And in the meantime, The Wife Who Knew Too Much is available right now, folks. So, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for speaking thank to us today. Thank you. Really it's been lovely. It. I really appreciate it very much. Great talking to you. Full-time mums. We talked about this before the yeah. interview, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full-time mum. You see, this absolutely blows me away because when you hear stories about, uh, like Michelle's, where she manages to do what she does despite being a full-time mum, um, it should inspire all of us to never have any more excuses, right? It's uh, it's something. Funny enough, I, because it's resolution time, New Year's resolution time. You see a lot of people debating this on uh, online on social media, and I think people have a valid point, which is you know people say, okay, these people banging on about right every day, they don't have to bring up a family, they you know the, they don't have these responsibilities that those responsibilities, and I, I totally understand where people are coming from because it is. It, I mean, particularly with young children. And in fact, I've got an interview next next episode with Rich Leader, who talks about having three kids under three when he was writing in screenplays. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and and how he oh my how he didn't lock the door, he let them in. You, you tune in for that one next week. That's absolutely brilliant. But you know, it uh, we're not going to pretend it's easy. But what this is about is about creating a habit, is carving out a little bit of space for yourself. And I was talking to someone on the Academy about this just this week. He was saying, my family doesn't understand how important my writing is to me. And uh, Michelle there was talking about how uh, making writing is one of your top priorities. It is a big decision. You know, she said, make it number one or uh, not number one, but make it make number two or number three top priority in your life. Uh, uh, and then everything else has to shift around that. And that is the thing you have to do. You do need to commit to this. But when we say commit, it's 15, 20 minutes a day. Going back to interviews we did with Liz Fennick. You remember we talked to Liz, F Liz Fennick. I think she was the first author we talked to about the Pomodoro method where she would set a timer for 15, 20 minutes each morning 
after the kids had gone to school and before she started her the the rest of her day where she would sit in the kitchen write for 15 20 minutes and that's how she did her first novel so it is hard we're not going to pretend it's easy we don't want to be glib about this um but if you want to make it happen only you can make it happen yeah it's like about we always talk about this idea of paying yourself first people who set up a business um you know, they always say the way to, to run a successful business is to pay yourself first. You've got to kind of, you've got to keep the ship afloat, as it were. Otherwise, you can't, you can't be there for other people if you don't have, if you don't have anything to hold on to. Um, we had one lady who's joined the academy who had said she'd basically put her dreams on hold because this, she was a mum. She's got three kids again. This is something about three kids, but, um, she said she'd put her dreams on hold for years. And I spoke with another lady who has a, a four-month-old son, and she said, "Well, I can't, I can't really afford the time." And I said to her, "Actually, what's super important is you carve out some time for you, even when you have a four-year, a four-month-old child, because if you don't practice doing that now, I promise you that when they get get to eighteen and they leave home." You, you will have to then rediscover all the things that you loved and nurtured for yourself. And if you can fill yourself up, if you can fill yourself up with something which is just your time, I mean, not only is it brilliant kind of therapy in some ways just to be able to escape for a few minutes in an imaginary world, but you're also, you're also um, becoming an amazing role model for your kids to say, this is important. This is important. And, um, and we had someone the other day, it was brilliant. We did an academy coaching session and we had uh, Rose show up and she had her baby, her infant baby on her lap. And I said, this is brilliant. I said, we welcome children, dogs, everyone, <laughs> cats. There's cats all over Loads the place, like walking across screens. But having a little infant, just the energy of this little infant who was babbling away and and maybe fell asleep during the session, which wasn't. You know, obviously, I was coaching, so that's not not surprising. But um, another another point, great review. <laughs> another great. Everyone's review. a critic. My one star. <laughs> but no, it's it's great because you know, I love to see the fact that there are people out there who are saying, regardless of how insanely busy my life is, I'm going to make this my gift to myself. And that's what you do every day that you write is you're making it your gift to yourself, regardless of how little anyone else in your family understands why. Yeah. I mean, it's very often as well, sometimes it's just about being able to give yourself permission to do it because you're thinking, okay, this is important. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. So this, you know, writing becomes number 12 on the list of things to do, but, you know, give yourself permission to bring it up to the front. And it is a, it is yeah, a liberating. Yeah, you're right. I think what a lot of people think about with writing is they think of it as a guilty pleasure. It's like, well, I shouldn't be writing when, again, another, another in the academy, another lady said that she, she felt, you know, it's almost like a guilty pleasure writing when she should be doing something else, which is going to result in, you know, earning a little bit of money or doing something specifically for the family. And I think that if you're thinking of it as a guilty pleasure, change the way in which you see writing. I see writing like meditation. I see writing like exercise, like yoga. It's, 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 it's helping your brain and your mind, um, just, just rest for a minute of all of, you know, it literally is pausing that craziness of your life. It's like weeding does that for me. I don't know why. And when I weed in the garden, I it just, I get time to think. And I always feel better having done it. So stop thinking of it as a guilty pleasure and start seeing it as a well-being thing that you can do yep. in your life. Write it, to help writing you. is therapy for me. It's how I make sense of the world. Totally. And it's how I start yeah, my day. So that's yeah. brilliant stuff. Now, one other thing that Michelle said to us fascinated by was this idea of the, the, the balance between plot and character. And we've had this, we've been around the houses with this on the podcast and there have been lots of different people saying what's more important, et cetera. But Michelle really shined a different light on it, didn't she? Yeah, I think she's absolutely right. I think... You often hear people say if they've got a problem with, and I was talking to, again on one of the one-on-one sessions. I was talking to someone in the academy about this the other day, where they go, "Okay, you know, my my plot's good, but I'm having problems with my characters." And it's you've got to stop thinking of these as separate things. You know, uh, you know, plot is what happens to the character, and then the character drives the plot. So you have this character, a thing happens to them, that's your inciting incident, that starts the story, and then the character has to react and make decisions that have consequences and make changes and grow. And the the character, you know, 
you the central dramatic argument of your story is 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 the change in your character so it's uh, yeah we got to stop thinking of them as as separate things i think once you figure that out it makes that process of rewriting and redrafting what she talked about you know uh, how how authors can underestimate how long that process can be but it will help you figure out those solutions uh, a lot more quickly i think yeah absolutely she also talked about books and pandemic launch <laughs> which is kind of like not really something that we anyone's ever offered a course on <laughs> no no but you're in the middle of one right now as well i mean how did you how did you resonate and relate to what she was talking oh about oh my gosh well the thing is when we did the i think we did the interview before christmas so we I, if you're in the uk they have this tier system i think round here was in tier 3 so bookshops could were open you know a lot of high street retail was open and my book the crow folk available very soon um is very much the route to market for that is bookshops and high street stores you know because it's uh it's it's got a cover that if you're browsing through the, the shop you go oh i'll pick that up and have a look at that and and i can tell you now a certain high street chain i think we mentioned this in a previous episode doubled its order based on the book cover art alone because they know that people will see that, pick it up and have a much greater chance of buying it. Now, of course, what's just happened in the last week is we've gone into full lockdown, the kind of lockdown that we had at the beginning of the pandemic. So everything, all the bookshops are shut. Well, I say shut, a lot of them operate in a click and collect or a mail order basis, but not all of them. And Waterstones have shut down completely. Uh, and mm-hmm. they were my big retailer. You know, I mean, they're, they're, oh. they're online thing is happening so you know the the double order that they've done might now not be any order whatsoever or just be a tiny number so uh, i'm having to you know rethink rapidly so little things like i'm doing uh, an online launch event so 4th of february put that in your diaries pencil that in 4th of february i'll be on facebook and i'll be on youtube i'll be doing a big online evening event. Much- which, which whereabouts on facebook and youtube will it be your like Mark Stay accounts? Or? It's uh, Mark Stay uh, writes, or Mark Stay writing. Oh God, I'll put a link in the show notes. Anyway, I'm, I've, I'm in the middle of doing this now. So tomorrow morning, I've, I've just been doing the terms and conditions for a giveaway today. So tomorrow morning, I'm going to start announcing it. So just just have a look at my Twitter, at Mark Stay, and have a look at my writing page on Facebook. I was going to ask you about this. I saw a post on your, I saw a post on your Facebook yesterday, randomly, of what looked like, a bar of chocolate yep. with your book cover on yep. it. I, uh, that is crazy. I love it. <laughs> it looks brilliant. Well, it's set in uh, World War Two, just as food rationing came in. So this is everyone's chocolate ration. So I'm going to be running a giveaway where if uh, if you retweet and follow me, you go into a drawer and you can win a signed copy of the book and a chocolate ration. And this and is a chocolate bar. How okay? How many of those chocolate bars have been made? Bar? I've got twenty of them. <gasps> you see that? That could be totally collector's 30. item because if I've you got think 30. about it, sorry, yeah. Okay, so thirty of them. How many are going to potentially get eaten, right? Which every it's like Bitcoin. Every time you like, every time it gets used up, it gets more valuable. What? This is brilliant. I've never seen anyone do chocolate bars for books. Where did that come well, from? Well, I, I did one for Robot Overlords years and years and years ago. Oh. Um, and I, it, we just did it as a giveaway thing because it, it's run by a company called uh, Chocolates for Chocoholics. And my wife used to have, you know, like I have Tupperware parties. Claire used to have chocolate parties. So people come around and oh, they pick brilliant. out chocolates for Easter and Christmas and stuff like that. And I got chatting to one of the representatives and she said, oh, we, we do business branding ones, you know, so you can give away. So I was like, oh, could I put a book cover on it? She says, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's relatively cheap as well, you know. Uh, really? So, yeah, I've got uh, I've got 30 of those and I'll be doing a giveaway with those, signed copy and, you know, blah, 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 and, and some, some, some chocolate to go with it. Just to sort of, because I've, you know, Simon & Schuster have been absolutely brilliant. They've been really, really good. But, of course, our main retailers are largely out of action. So we've just got to keep banging the drum. We've got to generate that word of mouth. So uh, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, what we'll do is we'll announce we'll announce the competition of Mark's book and chocolate bars on the show when, when it's time. So if you want to win one of those chocolate bars that could be worth millions down the road, <laughs> think about that, right? eBay could be going wild with those chocolate bars. Um but uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to win one of those, then we're going to be building up to Mark's launch as well for his book. It's very exciting times, um, and it's part of a three three book deal from Simon Schuster. This is. 
big time stuff. This is like, yeah, well, I, uh, this is probably the biggest thing you've ever done book wise, isn't it, Mark? Absolutely. And I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm hoping book two will be October 2020. I'm hoping by October 2020, the world will resemble something vaguely normal. We might have got everyone vaccinated by then. So, you know, by October, we can do the bookstore launch and we can do the festivals and, and I'll have two books to sell by then. So, yeah, you know, it's, which, um, it's keeping that momentum going. Question for you, which I'm guess is on the minds of a lot of people listening. When you talk about the bookstores actually shutting down, what does that now represent? I mean, do you know if what that kind of represents in terms of total percentage of sales with online being so dominant anyway? I'm, gu- I'm guessing it's shifted a fair bit since the pandemic happened because I guess online book sales have probably gone up. Actually, but do you know what it is? It is it over 50, 60, 70 percent online now? I, you know what? I'm. I've been out of it for two years, so I don't know. But what I can tell you, what was it, it two years ago? It will be different for every book. It will be different for every book. Okay. So you're gonna you're gonna have yeah. someone, the big brand name authors. I mentioned earlier this term "roots to market." So we used to when we used to have the acquisitions meetings at Orion. The first thing you, you would say is, right, what's the route to market? Is this a supermarket book? Is this an online book? Or is it a combination of those two things? Is it a high street book? Uh, so you would think about where people would dis- are mo- more likely to discover those books. So when you have the big brand authors, you know, your your Michael Connellys, your Ian Rankins and people like that, they tend to pre-order really well online because they're a brand. People know them and want more. And they can do well in the supermarkets. And the supermarkets over here, you know, you've got very, very limited space for books. So it is the big brand names and the big debut authors, actually. You, you, if you have a big debut author, like Michelle's book, you know, if you have a thriller, thrillers are very commercial. People love them. The kind, Crucially, the kind of people who go to supermarkets and buy books love thrillers. Weirdly, they don't like science fiction. We've done a couple of things where we put science fiction fantasy authors in there and they don't do as well. But thrillers, very commercial, really commercial. Women's fiction, very commercial and very good in supermarkets. But for authors where word of mouth is important, uh, the high street and Waterstones and independent booksellers are really important. So it will vary tremendously. Um, But yeah, the, the indie market in the UK is really very strong, very, very strong. And it's done very well in the pandemic because they've been very fleet of foot. Stores, ha- certainly, you know, in uh, where I am, stores are offering to do home deliveries or click t- click and collect and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, they are they are becoming part of the community in a way that Amazon can't, you know, and that's really, really important. So, And I, I think this is why we need to support them more than ever during this crisis, because, you know, once you lose them, it's really difficult to get them back. So, uh, Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are thinking of buying a book, um, maybe it's Mark's book, but if you're thinking of buying any kind of book, do consider contacting your local bookstore to see if they're doing any kind of special delivery, because every little every little bit helps really especially right now and you're right once they've gone they're they're not coming back we kind of know we've, we've seen that is the way that things are moving um I, I was queuing up outside my library yesterday to get in it was the weirdest thing i had like 10 people in front of me and um and in a way i was like what is this all about i'm queuing up to get in the library but i was actually really pleased mm. i was happy to see the fact that so many people were using the library and and still going in and getting books and um you know, it makes you appreciate, I think, the fact that we've still got those physical places we can go and browse books and look at books. So, so yeah, absolutely. Let's 21, 2021 be a year of, of keeping, keeping independent bookstores alive for sure. Um, and a lot of stuff happening on social media. I mean, 200 word a day challenge, um, always has a big lease of life at the beginning of the year. The big challenge this year for people, if, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but today, I think today or maybe yesterday is the day when most people's New Year's resolutions fall off a cliff. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> about six or seven days. I really want to encourage people this year to keep pushing through and somehow push against the idea that if you do fall off the wagon for a day or two or even a week, it doesn't mean you have to just say, oh, I messed up. Resolutions are not about like doing it every single day. It's about practicing trying to do it every single day. And if you fall off a cliff, um, it's like the 200 words a day challenge. We talk about streaks. You count the number of days that you manage to write 200 words and the day you forget or the day that you just can't do it, that's fine. You've then got your personal best. It might be 10 days. It might be two days. It might be 30 days. 
then your goal is to try and beat the streak, beat the personal best. So it's not failing is is part of what we celebrate on this podcast. We know every great author has failed initially before they've got their books anywhere. So let's let's fail and 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 keep getting the streaks going. So so what have you seen, Mark, on social media this week with with two hundred word a day challenge? There's um we've had a deluge, and I can't I can't go through them all because we've just had too many um, but uh, we've had some we had an email um, from Gillian Gannon who said hello the two marks just wanted to give you solid evidence that the 200 word a day challenge works having written the end on the first draft of my first book in May I self-published it in December hurrah now it's time to start logging Brilliant. words for the next one thanks for your great advice and encouragement as well as being a fantastic resource for all things writing and publishing you're an amazing support group for this joyful but sometimes lonely and overwhelming passion that we all share right head down and away we go <laughs> brilliant i love brilliant. that good luck with that jillian uh and also we've had uh, uh kerry williams kerry williams got in touch with with uh, her stats so uh her 200 word a day stats for 2020 Th- total words 353 739 words <laughs> wow yeah. um, that's that's pushing nearly half a million yeah average daily words 1164 days of writing 305 maximum streak 80 days and most importantly pairs of socks knitted four <laughs> I love it. Carry. I love it. We're seeing this a lot. People giving us incredible statistics for their breakdown. And I absolutely love it. That's incredible. 300 and over, over 300, 300 days of writing. You see, that's my point. Exactly. There are how many days in a year? 365. Oh, you missed 60 days. Well, you still got nearly 350,000 yeah. words. Yeah. Like who would do that? Third of a million if they words. hadn't, if they, if you, if you gave up on January, the whatever, you, you're missing out on books and books of material. That's amazing. Congratulations. Uh, Ella Craig, who is at Ella Craig Writes on Twitter, she says, I did it. A year of writing, about 250 words a day, produced a first draft of 74,138 words. Uh, so that's that, again, you know, we said that at the beginning. If you just do 200 words, it comes in about 70,000. That's a novel. Ella's done it. Ella is the model student. So, Ella, thank you so much Perfect. for that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but, yeah, here we go. Let's um, <laughs> let, well done, Ella. Let's talk about the hood level, shall we? Um, <laughs> Mark Hood. We need a special fanfare for Mr. Hood, well, don't we? Here's the thing. We're going to have a special episode with Mark Hood coming up soon. We're going to be doing a, a series of mini episodes called the Academy All-Stars, where we take people from our academy and we have, who've done something a little extraordinary, and we have a conversation with them. We've got an episode with Josh Atkinson, J.W. Atkinson, coming soon. And Mark Hood, we're going to try and book Mark Hood to come on, uh, if we can find time for him, because... He did it. He wrote every single day, 366 days. He wrote every day. He managed an average of 591. Uh, he wrote uh, 215, 837 words uh, between January 1st and December 31st. Uh, it's just extraordinary. He wrote for a total of 12,630 minutes, eight days, 18 hours and 30 minutes nonstop. Uh, but he said it worked out to an average of 35 minutes per day. He said, if you can find half an hour or 20 minutes a day, you can really write a mountain of words. Mr. Hood, we salute you, sir. We really do. We absolutely salute you, Mark. We've been, we've been, it's another Mark. Um, it's going to be very confusing when we have him on the podcast, but I've got to say, uh, we, we'd been tracking Mark's progress over the year and, you know, he was, he was keeping at it and, you know, come high or hell, you know, he was getting those words down. And the thing that Mark's proven, which is something that we, we, we kind of had known from our tests, but Mark's shown it now over a whole year is that if you do 200, if you go for the 200 words a day, you're going to average more than that. The second thing that I love about his statistical breakdown is eight days of writing, which is a, a lot of writing. But when you actually think about it in a context of an entire year of 366 days as we had last year, I mean, again, eight days and he's, and he's bashed out a quarter of a million words. I think it changes the whole perception of this idea of writing a book is this incredibly monumental mammoth task. It's going to take all year. Well, it might take a year to write the book, but it's actually only going to take eight days of your year up to do that writing or even less. I mean, in the case of Mark, he's done uh, quick sums three and a half times the average that most people do if they did 200 words a day. 
So let's change the perception. Mark's helped us change the perception on what we're actually doing here. Because the other thing is if you flip it and you think about all the time that we just fritter away with pointless, useless stuff in our life, which has no value whatsoever. When you think about how much, I bet you every single one of us, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but every single one of us wastes more than eight days of time a year doing stuff. And so congratulations, Mark, because I think it's absolutely phenomenal. But the fact that Mark has managed to keep the streak going, that is off the charts. In fact, there's a certain term we're going to have to create for the hood level i think it's called the the hood something we're going to call it is like the jason the Bourne gold or something of, you know yeah, yeah, the, it is it's the jason Bourne. it's the, the, the james hood, Bond the hood of, phenomenon of yeah <laughs> <laughs> the hood phenomenon 365 days or 66 days in a year that is bonkers and what's more mark hasn't stopped he's he's he started his started the year but he's also inspired a lot of other people and this is the thing we always talk about the podcast if you can do amazing things in your life, it's not just about what you accomplish, it's what you inspire others to do as well. So Mark, we salute you, sir. And good luck in 2021. I can't wait to hear how that goes. And finally, last but by no means least, uh, two of our uh, uh, um, two of our uh, patrons and BXP members have books published. So Jane Holly Meissner, uh, is part of the BXP team. She says, I'm pleased to announce my debut novel launched uh, and Amazon is selling the paperback and it's called The Fae Child. And it's uh, it made the top 100 in a couple of categories. It looks at its part, first book in the Fae Child trilogy. Absolutely gorgeous cover art. Really, really gorgeous cover art. And Andy Chapman, uh, uh, you know, another member of the BXP team, uh, he's published a children's book with an author called Cassidy Shade called Dinosaurs, Jetpacks and Rockstars. Now, I mean, there's the three essential elements of any story. And um, yeah, it's it's coming on the 27th of February, so it's available for pre-order now. So do check that out, folks. Uh, so yeah, it's we're off to a great start. Brilliant. An amazing start to the year. Absolutely. And I should also thank Andy and Mark Hood as well, because like a lot of people, they have been um, talking about the bestseller experiment on their YouTube channels and on their yes. blogs. And we and that's something we've never really mentioned, but there are a lot of people out there blogging about how the podcast has helped them um, and giving us a, a mention, which we really appreciate. And we love to get those links. So if you've ever written about the podcast and how it's helped you, do send us a link as to... Uh, your podcast because we we love to read about your stories and uh, we really also really appreciate the fact that you're helping kind of spread the word about the podcast as well to other writers brilliant stuff wonderful get in touch find us on social media we're a bestseller experiment on facebook uh, at bestseller xp on twitter and instagram uh come and find us on the website there's a contact tab there we read all the emails that you send us and please subscribe rate a review uh on itunes or your podcatcher uh, and uh, and come and see us again we've got all sorts of i'll tell you what some of the authors we've got coming up Oh, we got some absolutely cracking stuff. Uh, we've got a brilliant interview with Rich Leader, and he's a Hollywood screenwriter and author. Queeve McDonald is coming back, which will be an absolute treat. I've interviewed Mitch Ben for later in the year. I'm going to be speaking to Linwood Barkley soon. We've got some absolutely cracking authors coming up. So stay tuned. It's going to be a fantastic year. Absolutely. And it's so jam-packed, folks, as a little treat, we're going to be coming to you weekly in January. So look out for a brand new episode from us next week. And if you missed out on joining the Academy this year, it was sold out again. Thank you to everyone who's joined. Please do pop along to the Academy website and get on the wait list because I don't know how much space there'll be when we open again. So get over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and join the wait list today. So, Mr. State, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mm. I'm glad to hear you are out of hospital and feeling great and <laughs> raring to go with all these amazing things happening this year. This is going to be a bonkers year. Oh, my gosh. Book book releases, movies, who knows what else. Mm. I am absolutely excited. Who said 2021 has to be sad and depressing? This is going to be an amazing year. And I just want to wish everyone out there listening to the podcast, make this your year. Make this your year that you break through. Make this this your year where you start your book, finish your book, get inspired by the podcast and live your writing dream. Because folks, this is what it's about. We are here to get on with this and we want to be with you on the journey. So take care everyone and we will chat with you next week so it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye goodbye
to read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.